hi, this is Kevin Richards here from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, um, and I'm here with uh, Michael Hemphill uh, from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro for our second installment of uh, Going Behind the Research. Uh, if you're, uh, if this is your first time listening, uh, our first episode, um, uh, of course, part of the um, Playing with uh, Research in Health and Physical Education podcast launched on April 26th, uh, 2022. And I just make reference to that because I know that was right around when many of us were attending AERA and Shape America. Uh, so just wanted to make sure that you didn't miss that. Um, so just as a refresher, uh, rather than providing a forum to discuss research that's conducted in health and physical education, the Going Behind the Research segment focuses on telling stories that surround research, um, the, the research that we read in scholarly journals. Globally, the segment aims to humanize research uh, by providing a forum to discuss the motives that draw researchers towards topics and studies, challenges and successes experienced along the way, and the lessons learned that transcend individual journal publications and impact future research decisions. Each episode features an interview with one or more members of an authorship team to discuss the stories behind a selected publication, including, um, including a brief overview of the study, the Common Interview Guide, uh, will be used to facilitate each individual conversation. And then these conversations will, however, be unique uh, in that some of the follow-up questions that we get into will address topics that are raised by the interviewees. Um, and so, as I mentioned at the at the at the top, uh, my guest today is Dr. Michael Hemphill from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Uh, Michael, it's great to have you on. If you just want to introduce yourself and maybe the authorship team that uh, conducted this research with you. Yep. So thanks, Kevin. Great to be here. This is a really cool uh, series that you've proposed, so I'm excited to be a part of it. I really enjoyed the first episode with with Karen, and so. Um, Want to give a shout out to my author team. Uh, they include Dr. Barry Gordon. As you you know, Barry is a mutual friend of ours and yep. a leader in the uh, TPSR Alliance Network and has been an integral part in this, uh, not just this article, but the entire research agenda that surrounds uh, the project that we had here. And then uh, Dr. Santos Flores, I emphasize doctor, he just uh, completed his doctorate last wow. week um, under the direction of uh, Dr. Tom Martin, so congrats to Santos. And then uh, Dr. Emily Yonke, who is a scholar administrator at UNCG, 50% of her time, um, she is the administrator for our uh, community engagement portfolio at UNCG, and is also a professor and researcher in peace and conflict studies. Awesome. Um, so the, the name of uh, the publication is Conflict and Harm in the Context of Restorative School Physical Education, uh, and it's in the Journal of Teaching and Physical Education. Right now, I, I believe that it's still ahead of print, um, but we will link uh, the article in the show notes so that you've got easy and quick access to it. Uh, so, Michael, before we get behind the research, uh, could you please give us a brief overview of the study with the reminder that the article, um, of course, as I just said, will be linked in the, in the show notes for today's episode so that you don't need to uh, feel that you need to go too into depth? Yeah, so um, I enjoyed this this paper because we wanted to understand what uh, restorative justice practices um, mean for physical education. And so uh, through a variety of processes that we may unpack a little more, we identified a school in New Zealand um, that was kind of an award-winning win exemplary school for its use of restorative justice practices across the whole school. And so uh, 
we knew that this was an exemplar that we could go to and say, can we work with you to understand specifically what this means for physical education? So you do restorative justice school-wide, what does that mean for uh, school PE? And so we took a single case study approach. Um, I visited uh, New Zealand several times, um, members of my research team did as well, uh, and really built a relationship with the school that we call Capital College in the paper, um, and their PE teachers to understand what this means for physical education. And so we uh, naturally, knowing me, we, we used um, the idea of teaching personal and social responsibility uh, to, to kind of understand this. And so we use some of the uh, tear research tools that Paul Wright developed. Uh, we used some interview and observation methods, um, and the teachers completed various reflection documents around this idea of restorative practices. And so what we kind of found was um, there was uh, not as much overt use of restorative justice per se in, in physical education as you might expect given the use of it school-wide, um, but that the context of restorative really underlined uh, the values and the teaching of, of physical education. We also found that there was there were conflict and harm that occurred in physical education that are really unique to PE, uh, suggesting that maybe there is a need for restorative justice practices. So just for example, you know, cheating in a sport game or um, team-based conflicts when students are playing. So these are things that are going to occur in physical education, but not so much in other areas of the school, perhaps. Um, and then finally, we talked about, uh, we found that the, the coach or the teacher, whatever the context, was really important in setting a climate that is restorative or not restorative um, in the school. And so that's kind of the abstract version of the paper uh, that, that we had, we're excited about the contribution that it makes. Yeah, yeah, that's really exciting stuff. And um, I, I like how you went about giving that overview because I think you teased a lot of topics that, that we're gonna end up being able to kind of get deeper into and unpacking here. Um, so let's start broad. Uh, what got you interested in this research topic or the area more generally? And how does it fit into your, um, your broader line of inquiry from a bigger picture perspective? Yeah, so I got interested. So I had a career change. I was at College of Charleston for four years. I was doing TPSR research, youth development type research, and wanted to continue that. But as you change careers, sometimes you're looking for something um, something new, something to kind of freshen it up and a new angle. And uh, I came across this idea of restorative justice and found it fascinating. But the more I learned, the more I kept saying, well, this is kind of, uh, there's a lot of overlap between just my own personal values and approach to youth development here. Um, and it fits really well with what we talk about in the TPSR community in terms of our values and our approach. And so I wanted to understand, you know, what, what's in this restorative justice space that can kind of be additive um, to what we're doing in TPSR. And for me, it was the, the, uh, the focus on conflict resolution and relationship building. And so as much as we focus on relationships, um, we really talk about positive relationships and there hadn't been a lot of conversation around how those uh, relationships develop 
in a positive way through conflict and tension mm. that occur in relationships. So that got me excited. Uh, and it was a new agenda that I can embark on as a, as a professor at UNCG and in, in trying to, you know, achieve tenure. And then finally I, uh, intersected with, uh, people like Dr. Emily Yankee, who had an expertise in peace and conflict studies and, um, more importantly, some methodological expertise in terms of uh, community engagement practices that I was able to utilize in this study. Yeah, yeah, that, that's great, Michael. Um, you know, I remember uh, back when when you and I first started talking about this. I think shortly after you transitioned to Charles to the College of Charleston, yeah, it was a big light bulb moment for me because you know I think that one of the things that people uh, say about TPSR, I've had this conversation with practitioners and, and scholars, is that, is that they find it difficult to, to find appropriate ways to manage behavior using a TPSR approach. Um, and, and I think that, that there are ways to do that, of course, but it requires that you kind of get away from traditional approaches to behavior management that maybe many of us are comfortable with, many of us have been socialized with. Um, and so I think it's helpful to have a blueprint, you know, when you're trying to do something that's very different from how you've ever done it before, it's helpful to have a blueprint. And, and my, and I think it's more than this now, of course, but when we first started talking about restorative, my, my light bulb moment was, oh, this is how you manage student behavior, promote positive behavior within a TPSR context. The, the alignment really struck me. Yeah, I agree, Kevin. And there's that, you know, that lack of kind of focus on behavior management might come from our discipline too. One of the things I noticed as I read about restorative justice is a lot of the literature, it's, it's not in physical education yet. So, you know, I'm reading more general education literature and, and even literature outside of education, but there's a whole, kind of a robust conversation around um, student discipline, uh, punishment practices, and it leads up to that conversation around like the school to prison pipeline and how we suspend kids and on and on and on. And that really is reflected in like the disciplines. And so one of the, uh, Maisha Wynn is a name of an author who I've read a lot in this space. And she, she comes from English education and she's thinking about this restorative justice in terms of English education. And I would say that as a discipline, we've not engaged in a discussion about um, student behavior management in an in in-depth way in terms of like, what are the implications of our practices? Um, and we don't have an understanding of what's happening to kids when, you know, something maybe happens in a gym and they, they get sent to the principal's office. Like how often does that happen? Um, you know, what, what what's the context in which this is occurring and, and where are the students ending up? And so that's a strong impression of mine that I'd love to see um, some collective conversation around it as we move forward uh, and has been something this work has offered me a better understanding of. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 really helpful and a good perspective. Um, so uh, narrowing the focus just maybe a little bit, could you tell us about the circumstances that surrounded this particular study? So what brought you to this specific research question, this specific research situation? Yeah, so as, as many of these, it's it's a part of a bigger study, you know? Um, and so uh, we, we wanted to understand more about restorative justice and we didn't have a way to kind of anchor, you know, there wasn't a way to pick a school in North Carolina and go do a study and, and learn about it. And so what, uh, thanks to Dr. Emily Yankee, um, she's committed to, she talks about asset-based approaches. And so um, New Zealand was identified as a place uh, internationally that is, 
you know, 20, 30 years ahead of what we're doing in the United States. And so what we wanted to do is say, let's go see what it looks like uh, in a place where it's happening so we can imagine what's possible back home. So when we go work with a school, as I'm doing in Greensboro, North Carolina, I can have a vision for what this can look like um, where it doesn't yet exist. And so uh, when we went to New Zealand, thanks to our network there, led by Dr. Gordon, we identified, we, we identified a center for restorative justice. Uh, we connected with the New Zealand Institute for Sport and really just asked questions like, who should we be talking to? Um, what are the schools that are doing innovative practice around restorative justice? Uh, wh- what's some things that we're not thinking about uh, as it relates to this topic? And took this snowball type of method mm-hmm. and ended up in conversations with all types of people from uh, all sectors, from education, from government, from their uh, kind of a nonprofit sector um, across you know multiple visits. And so there's a lot of components to the to the research and for this study, it was clear that you know people talked about Capital College uh, is a place that is really advanced. It had a rec- kind of like this third tier yeah. of uh, their Ministry of Education um, restorative practice system. And so there's you know a tier one school would just be getting started. A tier two would be more established. They were at that third tier, and their principal was actually the leader of a network who would. Um, who would mentor other principals who who endeavored to enter this path and um, and, and things like that. And so that's how we ended up in this space to say, let's pick this school and just spend time there. And so on one trip, I I went uh, and I spent 12 full school days from start to finish uh, at the school um, from, you know, before school to the after school programs and staff meetings and everything I could do. And things would happen like, this was mostly a PE study, but they they knew who I was. And so uh, there's an example where an English teacher comes and she says, you know, I I think you're interested in this restorative justice idea. So I think you should come and look at the circles we do in our classroom because you're not going to understand that just hanging out in PE. And so I ended up sitting in an English class a couple of times and observing circles. And it was really that, um, uh, fluid. And sometimes with research, uh, we want things to be a little more systematic than what I'm describing, but that freedom to, um, to just find where interesting things were happening and learn from that was really rewarding for me in this project. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what you're, what you're saying there makes me think about one of the, you know, some, so, uh, we're, we're collaborating right now, of course, on a, uh, qualitative research methods, uh, textbook with, with Paul Wright, and um, and that's that's coming towards closure, which is really exciting. But one of the things that that I think I've taken away from that process more than anything is just like a really strong reminder of how good qualitative research is emergent. Um, and so, yeah, you want to have a plan, but you also want to be open to kind of redirecting or modifying that plan based upon what you're finding, which which it sounds like you know played out in a really positive way in this study. Yeah, you make a great point, Kevin, about that emergent process. Uh, We leaned into that. And one of the things that I I found that I enjoyed was um, there was a way in which it centered the voices of participants differently than previous work that I've led, um, because I've, you know, I'm always going in with a scripted interview guide that I've just done a lot more to make sure that the 
research is focused on exactly what I want. Um, and this was not that way in mm. part because of my approach, but also that I was in a different culture and, you know, they work differently than, than we do in the United States. So, um, you know, sometimes I was going in and, you know, asking questions like, tell me what I need to know um, and letting them lead the conversation uh, around this. And it took me places I would, I might not have other, otherwise been to. Um, and it allowed me to position uh, the research as something that could have mutual benefits. And so, mm -hmm. for example, we this benefited me in terms of a publication, obviously, but we also provided uh, material to the school on our findings. And um, when I went back and presented the findings and provided pamphlets and so forth, just to help them think about the connection to sport and PE. And they, they really appreciated that. And I've given more attention to it uh, since then. Yeah, yeah, and I'm um, I'm going back here a minute, um, and, and I guess I don't really have a question here, but I just I loved the way that you framed this when you were talking at the beginning there a few minutes ago about why you why you chose this site, why you chose this school. I'm paraphrasing, but you said something along the lines of it provided you vision for what restorative practices could look like in a place that it did not yet exist. Um, <laughs> And I just wanted to throw that back out there and let it sit for a minute, because I think that's a really powerful way to approach uh, a project like this and, and a really pro a powerful way to kind of position another culture, position another group of people as expert, and then position yourself as somebody who's going to learn in the hopes of bringing back. Yeah. I So somebody there's somewhere uh, I'm picking this quote up from, but people talk about the idea of like speaking something into existence when it comes yeah. to like language and discourse and this this was it for me I, I wanted this to be a part of uh pe in greensboro with my community partnerships i wanted it to be a part of tpsr and i still do and so how do you do that and this was my research-based approach to say i'm going to speak it into existence um, i'm going to research it into existence uh and kind of map this on to the process and so we've since I, I i have a program here uh in greensboro where we do this work and this has given me kind of a boost to be able to to do that and lay that vision out um and and i intend to carry that you know for the foreseeable future so sure yeah and that that transitions, I think, really nicely into the uh, the next question that I was hoping to ask, which was just, um, you know, how did this study or how has this study informed your scholarly identity or future research activities? In other words, what did you learn from this that's influenced what you're doing now? So in terms of my scholarly identity, uh, one of the things that this did in, in the larger agenda beyond just this one paper is it really gave me an identity as a community engaged scholar um, who has a broad reach, who can do work in my local community and can have an impact uh, and can do international work and have an impact. Uh, that's essentially was my case for tenure, uh, which I was just granted. And, um, so this is really the research agenda that gave me that uh, here at UNCG. So it really encompasses my identity um, as a scholar and kind of my skill set, uh, my ability to partner and so forth. And so going forward, I, you know, we had it has an international component to it. And so that kind of got frozen over the past few years in terms of being able to 
do international collaborations. Uh, I had hoped I might continue to find ways to do that, but it's given me the capacity to uh, first develop a lab around this idea of restorative youth sports. I have several doctoral students and master's students engaged in that work. Um, and it's given me a model uh, to investigate. And so earlier I said, you know, it's not happening here. So there's no way for me to go out and study a school. Well, we now have a school that, and we're, we're leading that effort, but we're doing it and we can now evaluate that program. We can offer professional development to teachers. Um, and we have uh, community partners who are interested in kind of trying this, this approach out. And I have a student who will be taking on a dissertation endeavor around that. And so that's, it's really been the impetus for launching what I want to do and who I want to be. And it's, it's put a flagpole to say, this is who I am, you know, as a scholar. Um, and I'm really comfortable with that, excited about that and looking forward to see where it takes me next. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, um, th that's, that's awesome. I, I, I love the way that you speak about that and the, in the way that, that you, you kind of, uh, have talked you talk about that as like a flag post, um, just for, for anybody who, who, um, may be hearing that term for the first time or, or may, for, for whom it might help to have elaboration. Could you, could you tell us a little bit more about what being a community engaged scholar means to you? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, and this I just give immense credit to Dr. Emily Yankee, who has mentored me since day one at UNCG and has uh, has really provided strong leadership in this space. And so one, uh, I think of myself as a community engaged scholar and one important word there is the scholar piece. And so community engagement is a thing in and of itself that we see on campuses from teaching, you know, going out service learning projects, uh, just partnering with communities in various ways. And so that is important, but what distinguishes the community engaged scholar is the scholarship. And so that is a matter of that, those community engagement processes where you're working with local entities, um, reflect a scholarly approach where you're advancing the knowledge base through community engagement. And so in that uh, research process where you're advancing knowledge that the community partners have, um, they can benefit from it the same way I can benefit from it, uh, that there's some reciprocity in the process so they can have input, they might participate in various ways, uh, as kind of co-creators of the knowledge. Um, and then it has those hallmarks of scholarship in that it is up for public dissemination. It is up for peer review. It can be evaluated, it can be critiqued. Um, and so the, this article is an example of that. You know, it's a peer reviewed article that emanated from community engaged scholarship, but there's also dissemination uh, to the, directly to the community. Um, as well as reflected in, you know, a, a curriculum that we provide for our local school district and we implement and things like that. And so that, that to me is what distinguishes community engaged scholarship. And I think we, a lot of us do that in physical education because it's quite, it's just a part of our value base. I think um, very few of us ex explicate the best practices thereof. Um, yep. And so it is not a, a visible process uh, that that we have available to us right now in physical education, I would suggest, but it is becoming an open pathway that we really should consider uh, leaning into a little bit more. 
Yeah, um, yeah, I think you're. I think you're really right about that, <clears throat> and it makes me think back to um, m my time uh, with the Center for Teaching and Learning when we talked about you know community engagement work and scholarship of teaching and learning and uh, service learning a lot as being these different ways that we can kind of intersect different you know uh, parts of the faculty mission, the teaching, research, and service elements of our roles, um, and, and, and I think that naturally a lot of us do that. Um, you know, as you're alluding to, but uh, but I, I think that fewer of us talk about it um, in in direct ways. Yeah, yeah. You <laughs> might one thing I'd say, Kevin. One thing we might be losing there is when um, our failure to talk about it reinforces the power dynamic and the privilege that we enjoy as university professors. And so, when we're talking about it and reflecting on it we tend to reflect on, wait a minute, am I serving these communities in right ways? Am I being reciprocal? Are they benefiting from this? Or am I just getting my publications out of it? Um, and so I think that's a space where we might be losing something um, for our lack of, you know, just kind of engaging in, in conversation. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Um, another side of that too, Michael, is I wonder if, if, if we could better you know, because I think that's, you know, being in departments of kinesiology or in sc schools or, um, you know, colleges of, of health science by whatever name, I, I feel like sometimes physical education faculty experience marginalization in, in similar ways to how, um, uh, um, in similar ways to how K-12 uh, teachers do. And I wonder if by, by explicating our practices and, and, and kind of connecting them better to broader established bodies of literature, if that might make a difference. I remember at, at one point um, down when we were in Alabama, um, you know, just talking about best practices in teaching, uh, uh, I, 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 I was using um, a case-based approach in one of my classes and, and the department head didn't understand that. Uh, because, you know, being somebody who's not from a pedagogy background, he didn't get it. And so I had to kind of walk him through it and explicate what I was doing. And then he said, oh, this is connect to a, this is connected to a broader way of seeing things like a bigger body of literature. And that, that kind of validated it for him after I could kind of make that connection. So I wonder if by doing that kind of thing, we might help to combat some of that marginalization as well. A little bit of a tangent there for me, sorry, but it yeah. was, yeah. That's a good point. Because what I hear him saying there is, this, oh, this is a scholarly process. Yes, right. And so exactly. what he, he might have looked at that and said, oh, this is kind of a, you know, a, a disheveled way of in, engaging the class in these these random case, assortment of cases. And you think, well, that's not, you know, that's not academic, uh, perhaps. And sometimes that's how people might look at, you know, you're going out to a school and you're kind of helping them with a PE project and you think, well, that's great service, but service is a small part of our mission. Sure. But what we're saying is, no, this is a scholarly process that we're engaging in and it has all the hallmarks of that. And we can identify that. It can be evaluated under a scholarly kind of, kind of umbrella. So, yeah, yeah, that, that's a good way to reframe my mumble um, or my jumble. <laughs> uh, but um, so uh, do you have any uh, stories accompanying the process of, of, you know, getting back to the, the study here, any, any stories accompanying the process of completing the investigation that you feel comfortable sharing that kind of give us a look under the hood and bonus points if, if your story makes us laugh? Huh. Yeah, but there's one in the paper, um, you know, I, there was a, a person, a participant who serves as a dean at the, at the school and he's a, a, his whole job, he's dean of restorative. 
And so this is 100% of his portfolio is to carry out the restorative justice mission of the school. Um, he's very good at it. He's skilled. He's experienced. Um, and we're in an interview with him and the school principal together uh, and having just a wonderful conversation. And so that really the impetus of the interview was it was our first time meeting and we're, we had, it was 90 minutes long and we kind of said, help us understand restorative justice at your school. And so they're just kind of telling us about examples and how it works. And, um, and I say, you know, is there any, I finally get to the question, is there any way that this intersects with the sport or physical education program? Um, and this Dean pauses and he's like, you know what? I can't believe I've never thought about that. He said, uh, I'm a referee for the soccer program. And he <laughs> said that when I go out into the soccer field, they can talk to me any way they want to. Like they might, you know, curse, they might complain about the call and he doesn't do anything. Whereas in his role as restorative dean, he would address that. And he has a whole playbook to address that in a restorative capacity. Huh. And that's his, that's his whole identity. And so when he crossed into the sport world, he actually gave up that identity and did not hold himself to that. And I thought that was so, I, I still reflect on it all the time. Um, how do we understand how uh, kind of powerful that sport culture is, that it would override um, that value set. And I think that might explain why there was not an overt introduction of restorative justice practice to physical education at that school, even though the teachers really performed kind of in a restorative manner in their kind of informal practice. But some of the things that the English teacher was doing, like very intentionally doing a circle um, with students was not happening in the PE. And I think that's a part of it is that there was that kind of a, um, a, a mindset. And so that was a, a story where, you know, that idea of kind of these open-ended interviews uh, um, led to this type of type of finding. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have several reactions swirling around in my head. I'm just going to pick a couple of them. Um, first of all, to have a dean of restorative practices is mind blowing to me because I think that that in the in the United States, what we have a tendency to do is is create these policy mandates but then don't really adequately create a, um, a context or an environment that's suitable for implementing them. They're, they're under-resourced, underfunded. Um, and if you really want to do something, you want to commit to it. I mean, what better way than to say we have a, a school level administrator whose job it is to make sure that this, that this approach or this culture gets implemented. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's super cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it also makes me think about the contextual nature of behavior, though, that that story about kind of going back and forth between the school and the uh, in the sport context. And, you know, uh, you, as you know, you have a doctoral student there now at Greensboro who is looking at kind of TPSR and restorative practices and more of a youth sport or a yeah, youth sport, high school sport context. And I've been I've been having some conversations with her and we've talked about this same thing, like that that tension between um, the, the nature of sport. And, and the focus on restorative and how competition kind of fits into that. It's, it's been really interesting. Yeah, it, it has. And one, I mean, one of the big lessons learned that I'm so thankful for here is the way that, like this is a, a proactive tool for setting a climate restorative justice in schools, I would suggest. Whereas mm -hmm. uh, when people read it in like criminal justice settings, it's, it's, a, it's a reactive tool to address a very specific instance. And in this school, what, you know, um, 
everything they did, it was setting a climate that is restorative. And so 80, 90% of the work was just um, having relationship circles, having uh, very proactive things to promote social and emotional learning. A very small part of the portfolio was the reactive, like having a com restorative conference because there's been a major conflict um, break out. And the way we've read this in the United States, as far as I can tell, is that it's a it's kind of a tool, restorative justice, when something goes wrong. So now the conflict has happened. Now let's activate restorative justice. Let's turn on the restorative light switch. And I could not have learned this without going to New Zealand. Uh, that it's not a light switch. It's it's a climate that you set. And when you have the climate set, um, then there is a, some systematic practices you can use when things go wrong. But it can become problematic. And I know we've talked about this in another context. When you use it as that light switch to say, oh, now we need it. There's behavior. Now let's be restorative. Mm -hmm. When that's not who you've been, that's not who you've ever been. And so that type of lesson is invaluable because it changed everything, the way I approach everything I'm doing with this high school I'm partnering with. Um, because initially I would have wanted to say, hey, can I work with you to get students maybe who've been suspended or in school suspension? Because yep. I got the light switch, I got restorative justice, I can try to do the light switch thing. And now what I'm doing is saying, can I work with ninth grade PE? Because I wanna figure out how can we set the climate mm. um, in place and, and then later on, maybe there's a way in which that climate can serve as a tool to de-escalate some of these challenges that you're seeing. Yeah, yeah, I love that. That's um, that's really cool. And you're and you're right. I mean, like, uh, uh, I think about our our um, our first uh, methods course and uh, in field experience that I teach here at the University of Illinois uh, for for elementary physical education, and we talk a lot about the important of importance of developing like a context that's appropriate to learning and a good culture within the gym. And, and again, restorative practices just feel like a way to operationalize that. Like we talk about those things sometimes with a little bit of ambiguity, maybe other times with, with not so much, but this feels like a, a really solid way to operationalize what we mean by set a proactive, positive culture in the gym. Absolutely. I could not agree more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, before we close out the segment, um, I, I've got just kind of an open-ended question for you here. If there's anything you want else to, that you want to touch on, and then I've got something fun that I'd like to try with you if you're up for it. Um, so before we close out, though, is there anything that you'd like to share about the, this investigation that maybe we haven't had a chance to talk through yet? Wow. Um, you know, I'm not sure. I'm just, I'm excited to see what, uh, what's next for this line of work. Uh, I, you know, if, I know there's a variety of people who listen to this podcast and, you know, I would note that we've seen restorative justice really explode in the literature and education spaces um, in the past, you know, five to 10 years. And it's, it's pretty new. There's been a couple of people who've written about it in uh, physical education spaces, and it has a lot of promise. And so there's a lot of space for scholarship here uh, for someone who wants to get engaged and consider these questions. If people are interested in conflict and other things like that, I really would encourage to look at this kind of as a lens to think through those issues, because I think we're at the front of um, an important movement in education, and there's space for us to advance uh, the physical education movement um, in that regard as well. Yeah, yeah, and especially with um, 
with other kind of maybe philosophically aligned things it might be a good way to say it philosophically aligned things like social and emotional learning kind of making a push now in physical education um, you know restorative practices seem to kind of align with the direction the field is going as as you're kind of alluding to yeah um, okay, so a little bit of fun before we wrap up. Uh, because we're trying to get to know the stories behind the research, it's also kind of enjoyable to, to end with some rapid fire questions that help us get to know you a little bit better. So um, I've got six categories. Are you comfortable giving me your quickest response? I'll try. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. Um, so first thing, uh, favorite color? Blue. Uh, animal? A duck. <laughs> so so in the first one i wasn't quick enough you mean carolina blue right i do absolutely <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm tempted to ask you why duck but i think we should just let that be and and not follow up on it we can do it over beer if you want to do it that way <laughs> uh, favorite season of the year uh fall in the blue ridge mountains there you go. Okay. Okay. Uh, favorite place on earth. Hmm, I, I just said the Blue Ridge Mountains. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to say a trail in the Blue Ridge Mountains along the Blue Ridge Parkways. Beautiful. Okay. Wonderful. Okay. I think I've, I, I think my parents have been to the Blue Ridge Parkway. Um, I think I remember them talking about that. We should, uh, uh, if you can visit the area, we should do a little excursion up. I, I spent a lot of time up there during COVID. It, it was something that kept me sane during the yeah. social distancing and a uh, great way to disconnect from some of the things, uh, you know, our technology and so forth and just reconnect with a sense of uh, sense of who you are. I like that. that yeah, I'd love to visit that with you. Um, okay, so last two, favorite food. Oh man, food. I eat everything, man. I, almost everything. That is a, man, that is a tough one for me. Although I do love fish and chips and okay. this, this okay. paper is about New Zealand. If you want to get some good fish and chips, they definitely have that. <laughs> I think I remember you eating uh, fish and chips at Nine Irish in West Lafayette a few times. Oh, you, you definitely do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, last one, favorite thing to drink? Uh, a craft beer. I'll say, yeah. Yep. 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 That's, 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 uh, so that's the end of uh, the rapid fire questions. Uh, so Michael, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. Uh, just to remind everybody um, the, the article uh, upon which this podcast was based was called uh, conflict and harm in the context of restorative uh, school physical education uh, with Michael Hemphill, Emily Yonke, Santos Flores and Barry Gordon uh, as the authors. And that's published in the JTPE. Uh, we'll have a link to it in the show notes. Last word. Last word. Oh, I'll mention this. I had a great experience with JTPE. Uh, Misty Parker, Missy Parker was the associate editor. Um, and there's two reviewers. I don't know who they are, but it was a really good experience. The paper is much, much better off uh, for those three people. So really want to give a shout out and thanks to that and just that overall service that, um, you know, we couldn't have this work without that. Uh, the editors and reviewers. Yeah, yeah, I, I, that, that's great. Um, you know, the review process isn't always smooth. Um, you know, it, it's a human process, of course. So uh, human processes aren't ever always smooth, but it's always great to hear when it does go well. Um, all right, well, thank you so much, Michael. Appreciate you joining us. Um, and we will talk to you next time. All right, thank you, Kevin. <laughs>